Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your host, Sterling Fox, and today, McDonald Laurier Institute founder Brian Lee Crowley says populism is not necessarily a negative. The BC Taxpayer Federation Director Chris Sims warns the feds are going to tax pickup trucks, even if, for now, they deny it. And Vancouver Councillor Colleen Hardwick wonders why her fellow politicians are afraid of asking Vancouverites if we want to host another Olympics in a vote this fall. So, let's get started. Sterling Fox with Phil Figueroa and Jonathan Chung. Here's a couple of headlines from this morning's National Post. Calling Pierre Poilievre a populist is a lazy scare tactic used by the elites he threatens. Here's another headline. Saskatchewan Party populism is the model to unseat Trudeau liberals. Now, the first story was written by National Post columnist Sabrina Madeau. The second story about the Saskatchewan Party, written by our next guest. Dr. Brian Lee Crowley is the founder and managing director of the McDonald Laurier Institute and here to talk about populism on Easter weekend. Brian, good to have you back on the show. Good morning and welcome back. Sterling, it's great to be with you. It's good to have you with us. Let's talk about populism, just the word before we move into the Saskatchewan Party model that you use to really identify what an effective populist approach can mean. And it's, of course, still working to this very weekend. But let's talk about populist in the, in the sense that uh, Sabrina talks about it. The, the, the liberals are calling Pierre Poilievre a populist. That's a pejorative. That's calling him a trumper or something bad. If you're a populist, that's bad. Why are they getting away with that? Well, uh, it, it, you're absolutely right that they shouldn't get away with that. That that is just them trying to uh, you know stick their own label on their political opponents. Populism, uh, in my view, there, there's nothing wrong with populism. Populism is uh, you know a political philosophy that says political parties should take their lead from what is foremost in the minds of people. Uh, you know, that uh, if, uh, if if the shoe pinches, as uh, Aristotle used to say, nobody knows better than the person who's wearing the shoe. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if people are saying, for example, you know, inflation is really uh, hitting me in the pocketbook, uh, I, I'm worried that uh, I won't be able to buy a house, etc., 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 these are issues foremost in people's minds. Yes. And I think it's perfectly proper for political parties to respond to those issues. And if you want to try and dismiss that as populism, uh, I, I think the voters are going to have a nasty surprise in mind for you. That could be a dangerous approach uh, in the years ahead. Let's talk about the Saskatchewan Party, Brian, because it is a classic and very current example of effective Canadian populism. Take us back to the Brad Wall days and the big turnaround with the Saskatchewan Party. Sure. Well, in fact, we have to go even farther back than uh, Brad Wall because, uh, you know, you have to remember, uh, and this is a, this is an important lesson for uh, the conservatives who say, oh, my God, you know, Canada is a progressive or a left wing country. You know, we're kind of stuck with it. We we're, we're you know, we're never going to be able to sell a conservative message to Canadians. I think this is rubbish. And Saskatchewan is the perfect example of why it's rubbish, because, you know, the NDP and before the NDP, the CCF, was the dominant party in Saskatchewan for like 
50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every once in a while, people would get a little fed up and they'd put the liberals or the conservatives in for a couple of terms, but then they'd go back to the NDP. And indeed, you know, Saskatchewan was kind of the poster child for a left-wing government in Canada. Sure was. And uh, uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, Brad Wall and the Saskatchewan party came along and said, well, actually, you know what? Uh, uh, the, the, the NDP is falling out of touch with people. They're dominated by trade unions. The trade unions aren't what, uh, you know, the average person in Saskatchewan thinks about as being able to define what, uh, you know, what's important to us. And they said, actually, you know, the, the NDP is starting to lose touch with the fundamental values of people in Saskatchewan. They, they, they believe in working hard. They believe in responsibility for themselves. They believe in, uh, you know, entrepreneurialism. They, uh, all the things that conservatives try and connect with. Mm-hmm. And Brad Wall in the Saskatchewan party said, uh, look, we stand for those values. Uh, now, uh, you know, uh, people try and dismiss them as a, as a populist party, but in the last provincial election, I think they got something like 60% of the vote. Yeah. And I, I think there are uh, an awful lot of provincial governments that would like to have that level of success. Well, again, and it's uh, so you point out, and again, I'm going back to the article you wrote in, in the paper. You're talking about uh, what if, however, Canada is a country with deeply held but non-ideological beliefs that are in many ways quite conservative, but the Conservative Party constantly misjudges how to connect with those values. If this yes. is correct, then Canada is not the problem. The Conservative Party is. Yep. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I think that um, one of the things that concerns me about the Conservative Party is that, um, you know, they, they very successfully channel the anger that people feel that Canada is somehow, you know, kind of slipping away, that, it, that, that the, the values that people believed in, uh, again, back to this idea of hard work, of responsibility for self, of looking after your family, of caring for your community, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, a private sector-led economy, open to world trade. I mean, I, I think this is the bedrock of of Canadian political values. And, and I think there are a lot of people who are angry that they feel that that Canada's... Uh, is 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 no longer at the forefront of the people who govern the country, even though those are the values that people believe in, uh, and and the conservatives are good at tapping into that anger. But anger, in my view, only takes you so far. Right. And I, I think what, what's what's great about the conservative, uh, or sorry, the Saskatchewan Party model, uh, is that they went beyond the anger and said, actually, you know, we can have a calm sensible government that's guided by these values that isn't driven by anger but by a a desire a drive to build a better saskatchewan or in the case of the conservatives a better canada and i think that's where the conservatives have failed to connect to those values that uh, canadians hold dear and yet speaking of anger scott moe the current saskatchewan premier uh, does get his back up from time to time when the feds push too hard he knows where his boundaries are he knows why he got elected and and uh, represents his uh, platform effectively on a daily basis and so yeah when bunch push comes to shove he pushes back well, and 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 quite right too. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that um, a party that connects with these small C conservative values in Canada should be a pushover. You right, know, if right. uh, somebody comes along and says, uh, "Well, 
you know, no, no, we should do something else. Uh, uh, you know, it's quite right for Scott Moe or people, uh, other people who believe in these values to say, I- I'm sorry, I'm quite firm about what I believe in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to let you push me off my center simply because you like uh, something that, uh, you know, appeals to some, you know, identity politics group or, uh, you know, some trade union or some other, uh, 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 you know, activist group in society. No, we're, we're quite fine. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, talking about the values that inform the mainstream of Canadian society. And uh, I, I think that's, the, the, the Saskatchewan party is very firmly committed to the idea that there is a mainstream and they want to speak for it. And of course, you know, for example, the current federal government in Ottawa, uh, the prime minister has repeatedly said there is no mainstream in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think he's dead wrong about that. I think that, uh, you know, over and over again, Canadians have demonstrated in their actions and in public opinion polls uh, that um, they believe that there's a central core of Canadian values. You don't, you don't have to have been here for five generations. You can be someone who just arrived uh, last week but if you believe in those values, you know, in, in freedom and family and community, uh, then uh, you belong in Canada. Interesting. Brian, I'm grateful for your time on Easter weekend. I know it's limited. I have about 30 seconds. Who do, how do you think this conservative looking at the big national picture and the disappointment by so many conservative voters in the flip-flopping of Aaron O'Toole and standing essentially for nothing at the end of the day, they need someone to stand up and represent that set of values. How do you think it's going to end? Well, I, I think it's pretty early yet i i i believe that uh, again the conservative party is showing that it's it's really good at tapping into people's anger uh but i don't think that anger is going to be enough to carry them into office i think they need to go beyond anger to show that they have an ability to tap into those values of canadians and make those values into a program of government a positive program action doing things and not just rejecting things if they can show that, I think Canadians will be on board. I think a lot of Canadians are looking forward to, to, to some kind of action plan in that direction as well. Brian, great to have you back on the show. Happy Easter, sir. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Sterling. Our next guest is no stranger to controversy or the newspapers, and boy, created quite the storm in the nation's papers. A few days ago, writing a column in the Sun newspaper group entitled, Trudeau is planning a tax on trucks, which rippled across the country like an enormous tsunami, uh, causing all levels of governments to respond. The Minister of the Environment calling it fear-mongering and disinformation. The next day, the Globe and Mail publishing an article, the Liberal dismiss accusations they intend to slap a green tax on pickups. And well, not to be outdone, the Sun newspaper group the following day says that Trudeau liberals swear they won't tax pickup trucks. Don't believe them. So Chris Sims is back with us. Chris is the BC director of the Canadians Taxpayers Federation, the source of all of this unrest in the nation's newspapers. Good morning, Chris. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, it's good to have you with us. Where did you get word about the tax on trucks in the first place? 
Well, credit where it is due. It was from a very scrappy, completely independent uh, journalism site called Black Locks Reporter. Okay. They do amazing work in Ottawa. They do deep dives into freedom information, all that good stuff, and they cover, cover committee like nobody else. So about three weeks ago, uh, they put out a, a small story saying, oh, we, we found this recommendation to expand an existing tax so that it does hit pickup trucks. And it was in this advisory board document. And it's like, okay. So I read the advisory board document, and then I kept digging. Turns out it's actually included in the official Environment Canada 2030 Admission Reductions Plan. It's in the ministry's own document. I have to make this very clear. Okay. So the minister writes the foreword to the document. He calls it a roadmap. The entire thing is entitled a plan. It's officially there document. It's their game here. Well, it's, They included it, the recommendation right in there. That's what I was going to say. If, if it's included by the government in their package, then yeah. it obviously is something they support. Yeah, and something they're at least planning and considering. And what gets me is that I said this is a proposed tax, which is what this is. In fact, folks are like, well, it isn't here right this second. And it's like, guys, we are a tax watchdog. It is our job to start barking the moment the burglar is trying to sneak in the backyard, <laughs> not when he's leaving your house with your TV. Right. Okay? They're thinking about this. They're planning it. They're discussing it. How do we know? Because it's right in their own document. We also know, based on the budget, Chris, of last week, that uh, they're going to need a lot more revenue from each and every one of us as they go forward with these expensive programs based exclusively on borrowed money, uh, which, of course, they will have to service uh, debt payments on forever and a day. So they're going to simply going to need more money, despite the fact that inflation is, in fact, working there in their favor anyway and creating scads of new revenue is simply not enough. So in addition to this proposed, in quotes, tax on pickup trucks, what else do you think they're considering? That's a great question. Uh, This is a major one that I would, I don't know, it looks like it would bring in a lot of money because if you want to actually break it down, it's interesting. Right now, the tax exists, but only for really big SUVs. So like a Nissan Armada, for example, if you buy it new, it's about $2,000 or $3,000, depending on what the emissions uh, rate is. Not the emissions rate, pardon me, fuel usage rate. Okay. Big difference. So mileage. Um, So that's a lot of money. And so who knows? I'm not sure how much potential revenue they would bring in with this, but I'll tell you, I live outside of downtown. I'm out here around Chilliwack. Right. Uh, look around. <laughs> Pickup trucks are the workhorses of Canada's roadways. They're the most popular selling vehicles in Canada. So it would be a lot. Uh, the other one we're really keeping an eye on for a potential new tax is a home equity tax. It's something they've been studying. They spent taxpayers' money to study it. They tried to deny they were studying it, but we also caught them using freedom of information that they are studying it. So we're keeping a very close eye on that one. But this latest one, this proposal for a new pickup truck tax, is a big one because well, it affects a lot of people. Exactly. And if they're already taxing land yachts, like those huge SUVs, like you mentioned, the, the Armada, and it's not the only one. There's a whole category of enormous SUVs that yep. are now subject to a certain certain additional tax. So it's pretty easy, given that that's already established, there's already a lane for that, to just add a few more makes and models into that lane, isn't it? Of course, and that's exactly the language they use. Expand the current green levy to include pickup trucks, which it expressly currently exempts. 
If you take a look at the current regulations since 2007, they've been there, it says other than pickup trucks. So what we would, they would do is remove that exemption. And also, just to really put a pin on it here, this is concerning because the current envi- environment minister, Stephen Gibo, attacked the Toronto Sun, which is a many decades old newspaper, mm-hmm. called us disinformation, fear-mongering. That's We've right. been around 30 years. We don't care what party's in. We are a watchdog for taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Him calling this disinformation and undermining democracy is very concerning because he's also the minister who spearheaded Bill C-10 and now Bill C-11, which is the proposed Internet gag law, which would control what you're allowed to say on the Internet. So now we have the state telling us that we're disinformation, including mainstream media like the Toronto Sun newspaper. Mm. And and again, uh, this is uh, very much fitting a pattern of the current government, which doesn't tolerate disagreement, let alone dissent very well at all. They tend to call you names if you tend to disagree with whatever it is, whatever they're trying to sell you today. Yeah, bingo. And so this is where I've got my backup here because I did my research. It's right there in black and white. They're the ones that said it. They're the ones that included it in their report. And, you know, folks who've been around long enough know that if a minister and his team really, really disagree with recommendations and a suggestion, it does not go in your final report. Right. But it's right there. And this is what's weird. Just like do a thought experiment. <laughs> this is the environment minister and the government that wants to ban these vehicles by 2030, either 2030, 2035. 35, maybe 2035. Right. Like, is this a stretch to think that the Trudeau government is thinking about a tax on pickup trucks? Like, what's with the pearl clutching? So I think they're actually really sensitive about this right now because folks are really getting hit with unaffordability and inflation. They're having trouble making ends meet. And now to have this report surface and them to be seen as considering a pickup tax truck, a pickup truck tax, they're maybe more sensitive about it than usual. Well, it's interesting because of course now I'm going back to the, uh, the convoy in Ottawa and the mm-hmm. long stay with the bouncy castles. And there were an awful lot of pickup trucks in that. Yes, there were big rigs to be sure, but there were more pickups than large trucks. Uh, And again, this is, uh, and we've seen the other uh, protest groups and so on. The vast majority of vehicles in any of those are pickup trucks. And I think people who drive them have uh, sort of picked up on the fact that they are the enemy, like it or not. Yeah, that's the feeling I'm getting from a lot of folks. I'm getting emails exactly along those lines. And again, just personally speaking, like I said, I'm out here in the Fraser Valley, Fraser Canyon. Look around, glance around. There's trucks everywhere, and mm-hmm. they use them for everything. And this is a lot of money. It isn't just $1,000 for a light-duty pickup like a Ford F-150 or even a you know Chevy Silverado 1500, which are you know the light-duty ones. Right. They, they're talking about the Dodge Ram pickup trucks, those big ones, the 3500s. They're the ones that tow cattle. They're the ones that haul hay. Like, I see them coming down the Coquihalla from Merritt all the time, loaded up for stuff. This is how they get construction equipment around. Like, how do they think Canada runs outside of the downtown urban cores? Or how do we get them their supplies for all that stuff in downtown cities? It's using pickup trucks like this. I I actually don't think they know how much, how much of that stuff gets done? Uh, Chris, by the way, a couple of seconds left here. Yeah. What's the price of a liter of gas in the Chilliwack area this morning? Uh, it's around, last I saw last night, it was $1.83 oh. per liter. Okay. Yeah. Well, what are you looking at down there? Uh, it's about a buck ninety six, buck ninety seven yeah. here on uh, on First Avenue coming to work this morning.
And so just to be clear, I get calls every week from folks who can't afford to commute to work now. Mm-hmm. Trades people, working people who've got night shifts, you know, they live in Chilliwack or they live in Surrey. They have to work in North Van. They have to work in Maple Ridge. It's tough out there. They got to do more to make it more affordable, not less affordable for everyday people. Absolutely. Thanks for this this morning, Chris. Happy Easter. And we'll keep an eye on this pickup truck tax and we'll keep Thank in you. touch. Thank you. Seven years ago, or seven years rather, before the 2010 Winter Olympic Games, back in 03, there was a vote held here in Vancouver uh, to uh, try and figure out how many of us would be in support of the idea of hosting the 2010 Games. So this is seven years before it happens. At that time, about half of us, about 50% of eligible voters showed up. And of that group, roughly two-thirds, 64% said, sure, let's do it. So with that approval, the bid committee was had another bullet in the gun, so to speak, more ammunition to present uh, to its application to the, to how to host the game. So now that there's a memorandum of understanding between First Nations Group and the city of Vancouver uh, to host or p- to possibly host another Olympic Games in 2030, it is not an inconceivable notion that perhaps the people of the city should be consulted as to whether or not we think this is a good idea. This is uh, the status or the stance that a Vancouver councillor Colleen Hardwick has taken with the notion of proposing a referendum on the 2030 Games to the people of Vancouver. Uh, the, the, the proposal never quite made it. It's been withdrawn and is pending. Colleen Hardwick joins us now. Good morning, councillor. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Sterling, and happy Easter to you. Well, thanks very much, Colleen. It's good to have you with us. What is the status of your proposal this weekend? Well, actually, I did bring the motion forward to council uh, this past week, and uh, no, the mayor nor any of the councillors would second it, so it's going nowhere. We will not have, at this moment, um, a vote on the ballot in October as to whether or not Vancouverites support um, an Olympic bid. Okay, now I have a two, it's a two-part question. Part one, uh, you were accused of being uh, somehow or another opposed to the notion of reconciliation by asking the people of Vancouver whether we choose to support this hosting business or not. And the second part of the question is, why did you not get any support? Why could you not find a seconder? Well, there was a seconder originally. But after the mayor's, uh, the mayor sent out a series of tweets uh, in which he said that my motion violated uh, the terms of the MOU, which is a memorandum of understanding, which it does not. But um, I think the mayor's statement uh, put other councillors on notice that maybe this was something that they didn't want to do. So this is, they created basically a playing field covered in political eggshells for you and anyone in support of this notion to proceed on. But why, though, uh, that's a pretty powerful weapon to pull out. Well, just because you might want to have some public consultation or involvement in the process, somehow or another, you're against reconciliation? That's beyond a bit of a stretch, Colleen. Well, we feel, you know, it is beyond a bit of a stretch. And um, I just want to tell you, there's a process that uh, council motions go through with city staff. And I had originally submitted this motion back on the 1st of March 
for uh, staff review. And the notes that came back to me through the intergovernmental group of city staff on the 18th of March said nothing about an MOU or UNDRIP or reconciliation. In fact, their comments were really about, is this a plebiscite? Is this a referenda? Is this a, a ballot vote? Right down to what size of font we should use on the ballot. Sure. So I find it very strange indeed that uh, when this was coming forward, that out of the blue, uh, the mayor jumped on it and suggested that there was some, you know, again, his word violation of the MOU. So the idea was, of course, to piggyback this onto the existing municipal election package, which is coming up this fall anyway. So your point being, since we're going to have this expensive process, why not just add one more question to the ballot? It won't cost anything more except whatever printing costs staff told you about, regardless of font size. And that's it. That's the only other cost. It's all part of the package. Very inexpensive and yet an important component of to to consider. So why uh, why are people afraid of a vote? Well, that's a very, very good question. Now, I just uh, want to step back to what an MOU is and a memorandum of understanding, because it's an agreement between parties. Yep. And it seems to me that each one of those parties is responsible to their own constituents. So each of the First Nations, also the resort uh, municipality of Whistler, right. each one of them would be responsible to go out to their constituents and say, should we do this or not? That would be reasonable. Because of the scale of what we're talking about here, the Olympics is is huge. And the financial impact on the city is huge. And, and you may or may not know that in we still do not know the outcome of the 2010 Olympics because the books have been embargoed and are in the, in the uh, archives of the city until 2025. Uh, mm. So it seems, again, it's very difficult to be making decisions absent uh, being able to review the outcome of the prior Olympics. But putting that aside, it really is the responsibility of each member of that memorandum to be consulting with their uh, constituents. And, of course, Vancouverites have voted on this, as you pointed out at the top of your story, in 2003. Sure. And it, it cost them over half a million dollars nearly 20 years ago to do that standalone ballot. So I was thinking, well, um, we can do it this way. It's not going to cost us a million plus dollars, which it would cost us as a standalone ballot. But would the city even consider having a ballot uh, under the circumstances, because it seems to me that they're trying to sidestep it. Well, there's another group involved here, something called Vancouver 2030, that apparently is raising the hackles of the Canadian Olympic Committee, being a bit upset at whatever they're up to. Uh, is that complicating the process at all, Colleen, or is this just part of the evolution of the application? I had not heard of these guys before um, this all blew up. Uh, but what their argument has been to my understanding, is that the Olympic organization, which is uh, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, looks favorably on bids that come with some kind of, of vote or, uh, you know, tangible uh, support of the people, sure. where they're gonna, whichever city. So this is really, again, um, what I've observed, I've reached out um, to the to uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee and and was unsuccessful in meeting with 
after the fact. But frankly, Sterling, I didn't see any problem with this motion going in. It just seemed to me, let's get it on the ballot now in October. We won't have to spend another million plus dollars to have a standalone. I never thought for a minute that we wouldn't have a vote of the people of Vancouver as to whether they wanted to have the Olympics or not, just because there was an MOU involved. So a uh, couple of questions here before I let you go, and it's wonderful that you take a few moments to just fill us in on what's going on. Uh, what sort of appetite, what kind of feedback are you getting uh, through your website and, and through your constituents as to uh, an appetite for hosting this? And do you intend to advance this proposal for a referendum again uh, before the, uh, the fall vote? Well, I first of all, I pulled the motion uh, initially when this blew up because I wanted to determine what kind of public support there was for it. Sure. And um, there were some online polls done, and they were 85% in favor of having a vote on this. So <laughs> you mentioned the early plebiscite that came out at uh, the back, or the back in the 2003 that, that came in at 64%. Well, from what I am seeing, that, I mean, that was about whether we have the Olympics, and that was positive about having the Olympics. But in this case, overwhelmingly, Vancouverites want to be able to vote on this. Right. So um, it's clear to me, and I did reach out um, to as many people as I could over that two-week period between council meetings, and it was clear that there was overwhelming support for having a vote. So on that basis... Persu- uh, democracy being about the persuasion of peers, mm-hmm. I imagine that my peers on council would have seen and been moved by that to support at least someone to, to second and get it on the floor so that we could hear from speakers. Uh, but that did not happen. So as to whether I can bring it forward or not, I don't know if the rules were, will permit it because when something comes forward and doesn't move forward, um, it it may be that um, it's prevented from coming forward again. Right. But I think Vancouverites should make a lot of noise about this because they are being sidelined in this process and prevented from putting in uh, whether or not they support the Olympics, which I think is categorically wrong. Kind of a fundamental point you're making, Councillor Hardwick. Thanks very much, Colleen, for getting up a little early on a Saturday morning to make it with us on the radio. It's deeply appreciated. Thank you very much, Sterling. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.